Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes and Friends, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out with friends. My name is Noah, but you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, you probably know me as 12-Tone, and today I am super excited for this guest. We've been mutuals on Twitter for a long time, but we've never actually had a conversation. So do you want to introduce yourself, tell people a little about who you are, what you do? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Nate Holder. Some people call me Professor Nate Holder. I currently work as a music education consultant based in the UK. I do talks and I do lectures in England and I've done a few in around different places around the world as well, talking about music education, trying to make things a bit more diversified, inclusive and touching on this thing we call decolonization as well. So, and I'm also a musician first and foremost. (laughs) Yeah, you're a sax player, right? Am I remembering correctly? I I try my hardest. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? As always, we tend to ask guests to bring a topic. So what was it you wanted to talk about? I'm happy to talk about anything, but um, I think it'd be really (laughs) cool to um, talk about children, actually, and kids' music. I listened to one of your earlier podcasts where you were talking about children's music um, and how children's music can be this, this really strange thing of like, like you were talking about, right? It's like people don't necessarily go for children's music as an adult, but you're making the analogy like TV shows and cartoons and so on. Yeah. It translates. And I, I find this conversation around music really interesting for children, especially for children, because obviously, you know, they're learning a lot. They're trying to understand these really deep concepts. So when you break it down, they're actually quite complicated um, for children to wrap their heads around, even like major chords yeah. and stuff like that, or, or, or even just a major scale is actually, when you think about it, it's, it's a quite a tricky thing to grasp, right? And so it's this yeah. thing of like, how are you teaching children and what are you teaching them and why? right? Like what are the things that they need to know versus the things they should know, but that can change depending on your point of view, right? So I'm curious to know what you, what you think about all of, all of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously a big thing with children's music is enculturation where like a lot of the point of, I, I say the point, I don't know that this is like actively intentionally the point, but a lot of the function that children's music serves is to sort of introduce children to what like, quote unquote, normal music is in their culture. And so I think this is like one of the reasons that I was really interested in talking with you is because I know that a lot of your work focuses on voices and musicians and musical cultures that aren't necessarily as much a part of what we in the West teach our kids as normal. Mm -hmm. And like, I think, because obviously like coming from, like music academia and having a lot of academic musician friends, like there's a big conversation in academic music right now about, you know, diversifying the curriculum. And you mentioned decolonizing and stuff like that. But like a lot of what I see on that is so focused on like undergraduate at the the minimum, maybe down to like AP or A levels. I would be really interested to know your thoughts on, I guess, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'm not going to say why is it important, but is it important? And if so, why to try and have those resources available for people who are much younger than when you would get to like real like academia stuff, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, I I think it's probably easier just to give you a bit of my backstory, which probably makes everything make a bit more sense. Growing up, I was very fortunate, I have to say, and you know, as a kid, you don't really realize how fortunate you are until you get older and you're like, oh, wow, okay. (laughs) Um, But I had private piano lessons And I had private clarinet lessons as a kid. You know, that whole world was really interesting because I was doing something already at like that age where a bunch of my friends weren't doing, you know. 
And so that was that thing that you can't really talk about because they won't understand. And you don't even <laughs> want to talk about it because it's not cool. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and then, you know, just just growing up and, and, and struggling with, you know, quitting playing the piano, um, which I, I wrote yeah. a whole book about just quitting the piano and just that whole process and stuff. Not necessarily just from my point of view, but I, I had a, a great time speaking to different people from different walks of life, different musicians, like some really great musicians that I was even surprised they they replied back to our messages. You know what I mean? <laughs> but people who have experience of learning an instrument and just that that whole thing around helping, especially adults and, and parents and carers to help their kids stay engaged in learning an instrument for all the benefits yeah. that it brings that, you know, I'm sure if we want, we could talk about forever. It was this thing that I think over time, you know, me being a black man from the UK, living in London at that point, looking back on it now, you know, there was no instances where we ever explored or even talked about, right? Um, let alone studied yeah. music of, you know, any black musicians from the UK. The only black musicians we ever came across were Americans and that was through jazz, right? But at yeah. the time, to be fair, I wasn't thinking about that. And I think time has changed, right? So kids are much more aware of these issues around diversity, inclusion, and you know, disability and everything, right? Far more than we were. We were using oh, words that, yeah. you know, we shouldn't be using now, but we were using them because it was it was kind of normal for us anyway. Yeah. And then vice versa, there were words being used, you know, at me that were normal in some sense, but it still it still wasn't good. And so yeah. it wasn't until really getting to university, realizing actually, it was when I did my master's, to be honest, when I remember getting to class and when I, you know, I first said, I'm going to do my master's, I was really like, cool. I had like a lot of years experience of performing, years experience teaching. And I was like, all right, I'm going to get this degree. I'm not here to make friends. You know, that whole thing, right? I'm not here <laughs> to make friends. I'm just here to just get my degree and get out. It's one year and I'll get it. And I was like, yeah, cool. Whatever I do, I've, I want to have a different spin on it because, you know, I did my undergrad and I did the stuff that they wanted me to do. But now I've got a chance to really put a bit more about what I want to do because I'm just clearer about certain things that I like and why and all of those. I've read some stuff, right? So yeah. I remember challenging one of my teachers. We were doing some work on ontology, looking at meaning, et cetera. And there was a few challenges that came up because we did one module I remember about performance and we had to write an essay. I can't remember exactly what it was about now, but it was about performance and looking at performance in a certain way. And their idea, and this is where you start to see how I think, you know, the biases and the the, the slant yeah. towards certain musics really come into play because, you know, they were thinking, all right, you're going to analyze a piece of, you know, classical music or whatever, pop music even, and you're going to, you know, break it down to certain things, blah, 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 and talk about it from, it was a, it was a philosophy course that we were doing at that point. And yeah. I decided <laughs> in my wisdom to choose a piece of, it's improvised rap, right? So freestyling. Yeah. But essentially he, what he was doing was going into the crowd and taking items and rapping as he's taking items, right? <laughs> and, you know, it was fascinating to me because, you know, you see that kind of, that level of skill and you're just like, how are you making yeah. this up on the spot? And so... In my class now, I'm trying to apply those techniques and those ideas that we were studying to this piece of art, right? Where it's not something that he's pre-written. Um, it's not something that he's thought about before. He's literally being handed items and he's going with it just like that in within yeah. like 16 bars or whatever, right? I wrote this essay, yeah. I remember, and the comments came back were like, you know, you tried to tackle something too big. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of know that. But at the same time, <laughs> actually... You haven't been thinking about music that is made and created in so many different ways because 
your thinking has been very myopic you know what I mean and so yeah. from that and from like encountering music from you know the 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 1940s 1950s by um by people who were coming over to the UK and talking about their experiences in the UK you know oftentimes you know yeah. coming from the Caribbean and being like well what is happening in this country you know what I mean this is weird this is weird <laughs> it's been a, a journey to realize that there are so many kids who don't have a particular um, who don't come from particular backgrounds, who don't play particular instruments, who don't listen to certain music, who can go through their whole music degree or even just in school up to like year 12 and yeah. never encounter music that speaks to them outside of, you know, what they choose to listen to by themselves, right? And so there's this whole yeah. debate in, in teaching, right? Where it's whether, do you study the music that kids already know? But because they're already getting it, they're already engaged in it. So should we just leave that alone and give them stuff that they're not interested in? But then at the same time, yeah. you're giving them stuff they're not interested in. <laughs> and so yeah. they're still, but they're still doing music at home. And and so you're not touching on that. And so this, I think this divide happens where people feel like, and kids feel like they love music, but they don't love learning about music. You know what I mean? And I think this is where yeah. your stuff comes in, which is, I think, incredible. And in, in some, in many cases, I wish I was doing what you're doing, right? Because <laughs> Thank you. you're like making the content that's interesting and informative and, you know, sound, but bringing it in a way which actually, if you're into any kind of music, you can listen to, you know, here and there and learn from, you know what I mean? I think it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, one thing you hit on there that I think is really interesting is the question of like, do we, as music educators, want to engage with the music that kids already like or students? You know, this is still, this also applies for like adult students. But like, do we want to teach people about the stuff more deeply about the stuff they already know? Or do we want to expose them to new things? And I think that there's a really good argument for both. But especially in that second camp, there really has to be a lot of intentionality about what the stuff they don't already know is like what we're deciding this is what you need to be exposed to mm. and i think that that's traditionally been a lot of what's missing in a lot of these cases it's just like i've said it so many times on the podcast but you know the western canon beethoven mozart and their friends mm -hmm. uh and that that whole group but like that's sort of so built into this idea of like these are what the things that kids should know about. And mm. then we'll also maybe teach them about the stuff they're already listening to. But like, you know, then there are all sorts of other things that, you know, they maybe should be listening. To, should is, I'm always, I'm always sketchy about the word should. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but like other things that like Robert Johnson, like mm -hmm. there are very good reasons to learn about Robert Johnson if you want to understand music, especially like modern popular music. But like, he's often not super in the conversation. Mm. Well, I was going to say, I think kind of from my perspective here, a lot of the time what I see sort of missing from this education on stuff like Robert Johnson is sort of context, you know? And and I mean, yeah. this is me being the sort of musicologist, <laughs> music journalist voice here doing what I do. But so often I feel like kids are taught songs and yeah, they they tend to be the sort of, you know, classical canon oeuvre or, you know, yeah. they, they tend to be taught about these sort of things strictly from a level of, you know, what is happening in the song? You know, this is a scale. These are the notes that are being played, those sorts of things, which, you know, I find there's a lot of value there, but ultimately, like, 
you can't just look at music from a kind of strictly theoretical level and pull everything that there is to teach from it. And, you know, I think that's what's so exciting to me is uh, about sort of shifting the ways that we we teach this stuff to kids is ultimately, I mean, people love stories, but kids really, really love stories, mm-hmm. right? Stories are such a good way to learn. And I often feel like, when you're when you're doing the sort of more traditional approach to music classes, a lot of people they're stripping the stories out of it. And you know, when you're teaching kids stories about the lives of these musicians and where they fit in and stuff like that, it teaches the kids to see themselves in those musicians, you know, and it really sort of encourages yeah. them to, you know, to place themselves within that history and to think, oh, hey, you know, maybe someday I could have my own impact on music history or, you know, especially when it comes to teaching, you know, musicians who are from different backgrounds that aren't usually represented in the canon, you know, you show these kids those musicians and suddenly they're like, wait a minute, his skin's the same color as mine. He's from the same place as mine. And he had this impact on the world. Maybe I can too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's so many stories that we can pull from. And even from the people that we do talk yeah. about often, there's so many stories in them. You know what I mean? Like, I I find really fascinating about people like Mozart, for example. I feel yeah. like we tend to put people, certain people anyway, in bubbles. So we talk about Mozart oh, yeah. and we talk about, you know, we talk about his music and we talk about his impact on, you know, music history. But then we rarely kind of zoom out from him and be like, hang on a second. So essentially he was a dude, right? Who is yeah. from Austria. <laughs> What's happening in the world at that time, right? And to place him yeah. in in even a bigger context to say, actually, yes, he was a guy who did some great stuff, but he was one of many people at that time doing sometimes not even yeah. great stuff, but essential stuff that was saving, either saving their lives or helping them to, to stay alive. You know what I mean? Yeah. And other people who were doing things that were incredibly just cool. And I think putting Mozart, for example, in his greater context, I think in some ways diminishes his achievements, I think, because you kind of reduce him from being like this yeah. almost demigod into a man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but some people don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, you, there's he gets stripped of his context and he also gets stripped of a lot of his humanity. Like this is mm-hmm. a famously with Mozart specifically... The dude loved poop jokes. I was about to say that. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is a famous like thing that like you know he he wrote a piece called Lick Mick Him Arsh translates to what everyone hearing that thinks it translates to, <laughs> and this is not like a novel observation that I'm making that no one's made before. It is something that's been coming to light more and more is as there's we're taking away this view of Mozart as the god of the classical period mm-hmm. that like all like music was building up to before then and then he just hands the torch to the next god beethoven mm-hmm. and like there's just this clear progression and he is just the best and being like wait no this is a dude this is this is a human being who was alive <laughs> for i actually don't know how long mozart was alive for uh, but you know i think it's 35 hmm. years okay yeah oh, that, that yeah that that sounds about right yeah. uh but yeah no that's sort of he had his impact on the world. He had a larger impact on the world than many people do. But, you know, he was still a person who wrote music and did things and existed in a, both a culture and, again, as a person. And he had lots of personality quirks that everyone has that sort of get stripped away when we start thinking of him as, like, you know, the marble bust in the museum mm. of the great pantheon of composers. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I think the question then we have to ask ourselves is like, then, you know, and, and all this to say, right, this isn't to like be saying that, yeah. you know, we don't like Mozart or, you know, no. ignore him. It's like, no way, like, come on, let's let's keep going with this stuff because it's it's great. Yeah. Um, it's just to say, actually, there's, we can make some room for some other people and we can make some room for looking at Mozart in a different way as well. Just like you said, with the poop jokes, you know, I didn't know about, so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that I'm always interested in with sort of children's music and children's education too, is the, it seems like there's this predominant idea that children should have their own little musical section kind of cordoned off for them and that we yeah. shouldn't teach kids, you know, things outside of that. We shouldn't have kids listening to, I don't know, the Beatles or Steely Kendrick Dan. Lamar or Steely Dan. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I, I don't have kids, but I've, I've got a lot of nieces and nephews. And I mean, in my experience, like kids love grooving just as much as an adult loves grooving, right? Like yeah. kids mm -hmm. really enjoy uh, music that can make them dance. Kids enjoy all yeah. of these things in the exact same way. And I think that when you when you sort of try to strip their musical canon down to this sort of narrow thing, you're missing out on so many things. Like I'm excited to show my kids Fela Kuti or something like that, yeah. even if it's not Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah, yeah. slightly different piece of music. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I think like one thing that, and I, I can only really speak to my experience as a former child who took music classes uh, that's not quite true. I also worked as a music tutor for children for a couple of years in sort of at least back when I was in uh, school as as like not not music school, but like elementary school that age. One thing that really was really missing for me was participation and specifically the like creative participation. Like I, mm. I specifically remember I have this this memory that has lived with me from like seventh grade music class where we had this rare assignment where we actually got to write some music and we worked in groups and I wrote most of my group's thing because I was the one, you, you know how group projects work. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But like I, I wrote the thing and I was, I was happy with it and I was like, cool. And I showed it to my teacher and she was like, this part is wrong. You need to do this instead. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember what it was. It was some change to the, the end of a phrase that I think she wanted to end on like the leading tone instead of the root so that it had a more functional harmonic implication okay. or something. It was something like that. Uh, but I think that just stuck with me as just like sitting down and have, having this teacher would be like, nope, you were creative incorrectly. And, <laughs> and again, when I, when I did work with students, I had like, it, it varied because I was, I was doing like voice lessons and piano lessons, but one of my piano students, like a lot of what we would do was he would sit down and he would like come up with a little melody on the piano and he was effectively over the entire time we were working together either writing this one long uh, quote song mm -hmm. uh, that I, I would just like write down the notes he was doing and we would go through it and we would play it every time and he loved it. And it was a great way to get him engaging with the idea of creating music as opposed to, you know, this very classical idea of music as a thing that like musicians create but then mm. everyone else is there to observe and receive. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a shame, right? Because I think you, you see inherently children are so creative and it's like, yeah. you, you get, you know, this, this bundle of creativity and over time it just gets narrowed down into this thing of like, well, 
yeah, yeah that's great, but that's not for here. And you have to yeah. make sure you do it like this. And if you do it like this, then eventually you'll be able to do what you want. But <laughs> well, that's that actually like calls to mind um, Ornette Coleman and a lot of Ornette mm-hmm. Coleman's sort of approach to music is very much about sort of like, you know, removing these hierarchies and frameworks. And Ornette Coleman recorded an album with his like eight year old son playing the drums, you know, and it sounds very jarring and bizarre. But by the same measure, it's something that I mean, I don't think this is the only goal of music, but one of the goals of music, I think, should be to try to push and explore new sounds and encourage people to express themselves in ways that feel comfortable to them. If your kid is doing something and then you're trying to kind of jam it into this tonality that is very sort of standardized within the culture, obviously there's a degree to which it's important to teach children that stuff. But I also think it's really important to let kids play and you know kids are going to make stuff that sounds very different and very out there and i mean one of Corey's favorite albums that we talk about uh frequently on here is the shags philosophy of the world which again it's it's the same oh yeah uh, idea yeah it's just kids have no who have no idea what music is supposed to sound like and Mm -hmm. so they just made whatever they could figure out how to make and it's really fascinating but anyway continue well, I, I I mean that's that's mostly what I was what I was uh yeah getting to is I think yeah. I think it's such an untapped market and I think it's really it you know it's kind of I I can imagine it doesn't feel good uh to be a kid and to play something that you know you feel expresses some part of yourself or you feel excited about and then be told well, no, this doesn't really fit into our Western framework of tonality. So you need to pay more attention to Beethoven's Ninth or whatever. Yeah, you, mm. you did it wrong. But yes. yeah, there's this um, this famous experiment uh, where they just gave a creativity test to a bunch of different age groups. There's something like, you know, how many uses can you think of for a paperclip? That sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And you know, you would naturally expect, you know, people who have more experience of the world have seen more situations where you could use a paperclip and will have more answers. But what you actually see is the inverse. Like kids come up with all of these amazing and creative ideas for things you could do with a paperclip. And adults are kind of just like, uh, you could clip paper. Like you can maybe <laughs> like press press a reset button that's hidden, you know, on your thermostat or whatever. And you just, you quickly run out of things because you've learned all of these frameworks and all of these problems that you solve without a paperclip that you get really focused on what a paperclip is for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whereas if you have no experience of the world and no one, not no experience of the world, children, by the time they can speak, have experienced the world. Uh, but like when you have a very open view of what's possible, you can do, a, you can think of a lot more things like, oh, maybe you use it to like, fix the bridge in your glasses or something. I don't know. I'm not sure how that would work, but, you know, maybe a five-year-old could explain it to me. But, like, those sorts of things, you just, you have so many more options if you aren't taught that those options aren't available. And so I think, like you were saying, Nate, like, kids are just, they're so creative. There's so many ideas there that, you know, sort of get filtered out. And, you know, some of that, like is arguably good, you know, filtering down to things that are more plausible, like, you know, but there's also a lot that gets lost when you have to focus, when you're you're stuck focusing exclusively on what you already know works. 
And I think kids are really great at not worrying about that in a way that adults aren't always as good at. Mm, yeah, I I think as well, like leading on from that, I think some of what we're trying to, I say what we're trying to do or trying to explore how to do is to figure out how to expose children to so many things. Because like going back to what yeah. you're saying, it's like, you know, your experience and I have a similar experience yeah. <laughs> to that where I think I was doing GCSE. So I was probably about 15 years old. And yeah. um, I remember we had to compose something in a particular style, right? And, yeah. you know, it was it was something about, I think, parallel fifths or something like that. Oh, God, you know? yeah. And I remember teacher kind of, I, I was like, this seems fine to me. And teacher saying, yeah. no, you can't do this, blah, blah, blah. And then the fast forward like five years or not even five years, probably about three, four years when I went to university and I'm encountering, you know, really for the first time, understanding what serialism means and, you know, yeah. encountering, you know, uh, Cage and all of these people, Stockhausen. And I'm like, hold on a second. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you mean to tell me, right, all of these rules <laughs> that I've been learning for the past 18 years, you don't have to do them? Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and not only that, right, but there are a, there are whole communities of people who will sit and listen to like Alvin Lucier, right? And, you yeah. know, there are whole communities of people who will pay you good money to create something that doesn't sound like anything that, you know what I mean, that that, that you'll hear on the yeah, radio. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. so I think in that way, you know, children should be aware of all of these different avenues because it means that hopefully you know, they might understand that their creativity might might be dulled in school, but actually there are yeah. musics out there that probably are very similar to the things you're thinking about, right? And take it in, take yeah. things in ways that you probably haven't thought about, but if you knew about it, like, cool, you would jump on that. Maybe it never goes into school, but actually you have a route into something else which you never dreamed of. Yeah, I had that when I was like about 12 years old or so, like someone that I met on like a trip that I was on, like recommended... Uh, the song Firebringer by Vader, uh, which the important point is it metal, which I had never heard before. And they were like, you should check that out. And I like I got that song through very legal software <laughs> and just listened. And it, it fundamentally changed my life. I don't even listen to that song that often anymore. Like, it's not my favorite metal song. Mm -hmm. It's a good song. But like, just seeing at that at that formative age, like, oh, this is a thing you can do with music. It's not, you know, and it's it's not like at the time I was I was thinking like, oh, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb is what music is. Mm -hmm. Like, my dad had a big classic rock collection. Uh, listeners, regular listeners of the podcast will recognize when I say Jackson Brown, that that's, that's where that came from. But like those sorts of things, like I did get a fair amount of that. But like, this was the first music that was like, oh, this is my music. Mm -hmm. This is something that I connect to. And... You know, and I'm not saying that we should give Vader to toddlers. Having that more open space, letting kids hear a little bit of a lot of things, mm. A, gives them more chance to find which thing they want to latch onto, and B, it also gives you more space for your own creativity if you want to become a musician. Because, again, great is another word that I get very squirrely about, <laughs> but I'm going to use it here and trust that people know what I actually mean. But a lot of, you know, quote unquote, great musicians, a lot of the people that I think of as great musicians have very broad influences. Like they listen to a lot of things and they sort of bring that in. Like this was the thing I was talking about in my recent video on Smells Like Teen Spirit, where it's like 
yeah, you wouldn't think from listening to Nirvana that Dave Grohl was hugely inspired by the Gap Band, but he mm. was. Like, he very clearly was, and he'll admit that, and he'll own that. And, like, you know, Kurt Cobain was influenced by, you know, Boston. Like, the riff is very borrowed from Boston, and obviously the Pixies and all of these different groups that sound very different sort of all get channeled into this one artist because they have broad enough influences and they listen broadly enough and they like are familiar with enough different kinds of music that they can think about how to synthesize that in a way that you really can't if you're just learning this sort of one set of rules. What was it about Firebringer that just did it for you? Like what what was it if you could? Oh God. Yeah, it was multiple decades ago. So this is a little tricky, but uh, I, I think a lot of it was the vocals. Like the idea that, because again, my my, my mus- professional musical background back when I was trying to be a performing musician before I gave up on that uh, was to be a metal singer. That That's what my degree is in. Uh, that is sort of a lot of what I was good at. And that sort of, the idea that that was a thing you could do with the human voice and that it like, if you did it right, it didn't hurt. And it just, it was so such a transformative revelation. And obviously like a, a lot of the rest of it, like I, the guitar sounds were really interesting. Like it's one of those, like at the time I wouldn't have called it heaviness, but you know, the heaviness of the track was really, really compelling in a way that like didn't really match with sort of the Jackson Brown, Grateful Dead style classic rock that I had inherited from my dad or, you know, the more pop rock Elton John, uh, Billy Joel stuff that I got from my mom. Uh, and so like filtering all of that I had a very specific conception of the sorts of things that like adult music did Mm. and it challenged so many of those in so many ways. And it was like, like I say, it really, it opened my eyes to a lot of what you could do with music. And, you know, to this day, that's been a huge part of my musical journey is, you know, and not, not just specifically Vader, um, Again, regular viewers of the podcast will probably have predicted that I'm about to say the name Rob Zombie. He was a huge influence overall. Like he's, I think, the person I credit more than anything with the fact that I am a musician today is because of Rob Zombie. So again, a lot of that is to sort of self-interrogate a little bit more. Uh, Something I've talked about on the podcast before is like Rob Zombie's approach to lyrics and like metal's approach to lyrics as well. And the idea of sort of using words less to tell stories and more because they sound cool. Like that's a was a big thing in in Firebringer and in a lot of Rob Zombie's work that I always found really compelling was like and again, like I, I love stories and music, but yeah. And it's kind of funny because cause that's also something that is very common in a lot of children's music, right? Is yeah. sort of you know, super califragilistic expialidocious, right? Like, yeah, that's that's sort of a, a kind of trope in children's music. That's yeah. also a trope in new metal. Uh, is, yeah. is, is and and also, I mean, another and someone who also wrote a lot of kind of childrensy um, children's music type stuff. Uh, like John Lennon did that a ton, right? The yeah. Beatles really loved sort of nonsense words as lyrics, and yeah, that's. It's it's funny that you're saying, you know, that th- you're pulling that exact same influence as something that really excited you as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, no, 
uh, I, I find it really interesting to hear like what that thing is that that really grabbed you and I was even yeah you know as you're talking about like that thinking about even that rap certain rappers and how certain rappers will use words in that way in uh, not in the yeah. same way but you know in a way where it's you know the the melody of it becomes yeah. a thing in itself as opposed to the word being the the thing I think Ludacris yeah. does that quite a lot right the, sa- the sound is so important yeah. yeah 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 exactly um but yeah that's just that thing like what is it that captures you as a child you know to a particular yeah. style obviously there's so many influences right like you you know the parents you, you, yeah. you know, the, your friends and so on um but yes yeah, it's like what is it what is that thing and how do you find it when do you find it if you are constantly surrounded by that music that is created for you um yeah. which you are not actually really analyzing at the same time but in different ways teaches you things and yeah that whole that whole um the whole genre of children's music I find it to be really interesting and I've seen so many examples you know even with my daughter um she she hears some of that stuff but I don't play that stuff to her right she yeah. she will be singing along to every single ad lib of any earth wind and fire song you want to you want to name amazing. Right? <laughs> or Stevie Wonder like you know she's going yeah. through a, a Beyonce phase kind of Beyonce Destiny's Child phase in the moment but nice. you know for a time she was you know Celine Dion and you know she's just I'm, I'm you know trying to get her to scout along to um giant steps right you know what i mean like just <laughs> just just, <laughs> just throwing all this stuff and she's just absorbing all of it and it's incredible yeah. um without you know going down the route of you know <laughs> barney and all that stuff which is cool yeah. in in you know it, it does yeah. its, it does its thing um but it's like yo they can they can as children they understand things and they're interpreting music in their own way I, I remember that was always so exciting yeah. for me as a kid was, you know, the idea of finding your own music, you know, even if it is sort yeah. of your own favorite songs out of all of the stuff that your parents played. Um, but just something that's that's a song that you personally love and attach to. I think that that's such a such an important and such an exciting experience as a young music fan. Like I can still remember for me, a lot of the kind of early stuff that I really latched onto was a lot of great big C. And that was so formative just for having these songs that I, I became obsessed with on my terms. Even if that was the music that my parents were playing, they were just Mm. playing this music and I was latching onto which songs of everything that I heard that I really loved. Yeah. And to be fair, there's a lot to latch onto with Great Big C. Absolutely. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm making notes, by the way, because like, <laughs> like, like the stuff that I might listen to, stuff you listen to, like mostly maybe is like, sounds very different. And so like, I'm taking notes and I'm going to check out all this stuff. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, I do that with Noah all the time too. It'll just like mention bands like off, like on that case, that one I do know pretty well as well. But like, uh, he'll just like throw out bands and be like, oh, I, I I'm, I'm gonna look that one up. Oh yeah, like, <laughs> that's uh, that's part of the yeah. fun, right? And I think I think in different ways, kind of, you know, bringing it back to like learning and teaching, right? I think in different ways, we we can do a disservice to children in that way because it sounds like to me a lot of the influences that you you both have been talking about have come from in different ways, parents and friends, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And as I think there's this thing about the parents and carers, the older people in your life you know, who have yeah. so much more experience, who have found in different ways their thing, whatever it is, mm-hmm. kind of introducing you to certain concepts and certain ideas and, you know, even a particular piece of music that you already know, 
being able to explain it or being able to interpret it, you know, whether it's through a dance move or whether it's in different ways, right? Um, that you wouldn't have thought of at, you know, the age of 15 or even at the age of 30 or the age yeah. of 10, right? And I think in some ways in the education system, you know, as you know, we've, we've, we've put everyone in, into batches according to their age, right? Yeah. And I think in some ways that process in the music class kind of does you a disservice because yes. if you're around people with similar experiences to you in, I mean, not all experiences are the same, right? But, yeah. you know, you're, in different ways you're processing the world in similar ways just due to your age right um then there's a there might be in different ways a lack of this kind of diversity in the stuff that you might listen to but not only that but just the yeah. appreciation of it and well, so and yeah no I a think lot like of on okay. that on that note like i think a lot of people will tell you and me included some of their kind of some of the people that really got them into music tend to be older siblings or older cousins. I was about to say that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. or, you, you know, people, often often family members, but not necessarily, but, you know, older people in their lives who are, even if it's just a couple of years older, um, you, you know, have that, just have a bit more knowledge and a bit more experience uh, with the music world, kind of showing yeah. showing their younger sibling stuff. I know for me, a lot of, a lot of the bands that I came to really really love to this day you know like my older brother got into like led zeppelin and pink floyd before i did and that was sort of my my introduction into that stuff so yeah i think you're completely right yeah. with cordoning off kids by the exact age range also just because you know when you're a kid the difference that a year or two makes in your tastes who you who you are really what you might be interested in it, it it makes such a big difference in oh yeah all of that stuff yeah we're talking about like the importance of receiving music but also like sort of on the flip side i think there's a lot to be said for sharing music and sharing mm, your music mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like that's that's i think a big part of it as well and this is i i don't know how i would incorporate this into like a formal education system i have no idea mm. but like i for instance we were talking about great big c my sibling and i both love them i found them first and so there was a bit of like, oh, sharing this, especially with someone who I, I had gotten a lot of my music from because mm -hmm. they, they are older than me. And so like that's what was a big thing. But just being able to take this thing and be like, oh, I found this. I think you'd like it. And showing, I mean, this is the thing we've talked about in like a lot of contexts where like, you know, showing your music is in many ways showing you. And it's communicating mm -hmm. in, not just that you like this song, but it's communicating also important things about you and you are opening up about yourself in a way that if that gets received well can be really meaningful and so again like i i have no idea how i would say like oh schools should do this that seems very complicated to do in that sort of structured hierarchic fashion mm -hmm. but having that space to be able to go to but either your friends your peers even your parents like just be like hey i found a thing like, I really like this, check it out, uh, is a really meaningful experience. I yeah. mean, even like a musical show and tell seems like something that wouldn't be hard to do, though, right? Is just yeah. get a bunch of kids to pick a song and just talk about why they like that song. Because I, I also think yeah. that's something, too, where in in showing and in sharing music, often for me, that's sort of how you, that's where you really kind of interrogate what it is you actually like about the song it's Absolutely. often like something hits you and you're like 
you know, you just you just vibe with the song and just the song just gets you going. And then when you need to kind of pitch the song to someone else or the artist yeah. to someone else, you need to say, you should listen to this. And they're like, well, why should I listen to this? Then then you kind of need to interrogate yourself and figure out what they do, what what that song or that artist or whatever it is does for you. Then you sort of need to um, be like, oh, OK, well, I like this yeah. song because it's got a really good bass line and because it's got a chorus that I like or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, I had that earlier this podcast when Nate asked, like, what I what was it about Firebringer? It was like, it has been 20 years. <laughs> yeah. I never thought to ask that question. And I remember, like, I showed it to my my dad. His response was basically, I'm not into this, but I like that you are. That's cool for you. And, like, I was as supportive as he could be for someone who didn't genuinely enjoy the song, which, fair <laughs> enough, I appreciate that. Uh, but, like, there was never really from there interrogated, like, okay, what is it about this? Because I, I didn't really expect him to like it. Again, it's, it's a really interesting question to ask about music you like, and I had never stopped to ask about that particular song until literally like 20 minutes ago, so... You know an easy way to tell, and as you're talking, I'm just I'm just seeing all these scenes in my mind, right? You notice that something really funny happens, even when people are showing someone like a text message or something, right? It's like, yeah. I know this song, okay? And so I'm going to yeah. play you this song, but we don't often, you know, especially if we're in this, in this physical space with someone, we don't often like let them go and do it by themselves, right? It's like, I'm going to listen to the song with you. It's almost like yeah. I'm yeah. guiding you through the song yeah. as we're going through it. And one thing I've often realized is that the, the parts of the song or the piece or whatever that people gravitate towards, they'll often, it'll often be reflected in the physiology. So, you know, if something yeah. happens on the bass, you, you know, someone will be showing you this piece of music that you've never heard before, potentially. And they're like, you know, exaggerating what's happening on the bass. And they're looking at you, like looking for your reaction <laughs> and, you know, the horns do something and you see the yeah. three fingers come up, you know what I mean? And <laughs> kind of yeah. waving around, like imitating <laughs> the horns and, you know, or the keys yeah. and you see the head, you know, people's heads will like, like, you know, just twitch, like, you know, that part, that part. And yeah. it's like, we're, we're always giving people like those subtle and not so subtle cues about the yeah. things that we like in hopes that, you yeah. know, you hear it and you're like, yeah, I understand why you like yeah. it to kind of bring some kind of validation to why we do. I always do the stank face at a group, at, at a good oh, groove. Yeah. yeah. But it's, I, I often like, I, I will like try actively not to do that and like watch your, like, not generic you, but watch the other person's reaction and just be like, we're, we're coming up on my favorite part are you going to get this? Not at all in yeah. like a judgmental way, but like, let's see if this lands. I like, yeah. I want to see if you have the same reaction I do, because like when this chorus hits, it's a revelation for me. Do you think in some ways we're like searching for like universals in some sense? I don't know if it's universals so much as it's just... As impersonal kind of, if yeah. I like this... You know, and it's yeah. this specific part. Let me see if you do. Like, if you do, it's like, oh, you know what? There's something. It's not just me, you know. There's something yeah. about this thing. And if everyone does, yes, it's like, all right, cool. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think it, it can be that. It can also just be looking for connection, right? Like, I'm, I'm not necessarily, like, trying to prove that this part is objectively good. I'm trying to prove that I know you well enough to know that mm. you'll get it, right? Yeah. Like, this is, this is the thing I'm sharing with you because I think you'll like it. And now I'm waiting to see if I got that right. Yeah. And which is also like, I, I think you're absolutely right that there's also a part of it that's like, you know, I want validation for liking this. Like, but I, I think there's also that like social thing that is just like, I, especially when you're sharing with a friend or like a loved one where that connection itself is very meaningful, showing them a piece of music that you think 
expresses something to them is mm. a very vulnerable action. And so you're watching and being like, are you going to get this? Are you going to catch the catch this throw? Are you going to understand what I'm going for here? Mm. And so I think that's a part of it as well. And yeah, to, to kind of bring it back to the children's thing on that, like, I don't think that's something kids often get to do, right? Kids, especially yeah. toward adults, like usually it's adults showing kids songs and there's something very cool and exciting about that. Um, but by the same measure, like as a kid, you want so bad for adults to sort of validate your tastes and your opinions and yeah. to see you as a person. And I think that that's something that a lot of kids just just don't really get to do is have a song that they get to show to, you know, their parent or their uncle or whoever. But do you think that's changing now with children, younger and younger children having more access to stuff? I think it has to be. I'm, I'm, I'm a lot less connected to what children are up to than I was when I was a child. So I'm not entirely <laughs> sure, but that would make sense. Yeah. And I think in some ways, it's really funny. We can have these conversations, but I'm sure life is moving at a pace that yeah. we haven't quite understood because yeah. Oh, yeah. we're not in those circles and we're not, I don't know about you, but I'm not like heavily into TikTok like that to understand, no. even under, even to really see firsthand like the effect it's having yeah. on the music industry, right? And just how TikTok yeah. is really driving so much right now. Yeah. We had a, an episode a while ago now where we talked to a friend of ours who's like, I think it was like 18 at the time, maybe 19, is so much more into involved in that like side of modern culture than we are because he's so much younger. Mm. And it was a really interesting perspective to get just to like hear how he thought about like, like TikTok, especially like we talked a fair bit about that and how that influenced music in ways that like I certainly hadn't noticed because I don't know the parts of TikTok that would then cause those effects. Like he was listening to this, it was like, okay, you you made this song so that it would go viral on TikTok. I I got that. I see why that happens, <laughs> and I I don't have the ear for that because I don't, I'm not familiar enough with that side of the culture. Which, again, not not a judgment on anything. I'm not trying to portray myself as above it or anything. That's just you know. I'm 33 and I am too used to YouTube to learn a new platform. So I, th I think one of the things too that like I've seen from my nieces and nephews um, that's very different from when I was a kid with TikTok is is the dancing of it all. Like yeah. when, when I was a kid, we do lots of dances in, you know, elementary school. You'd stand up and do yeah. the Macarena or whatever, but there wasn't yeah. a ton of self-directed dancing or you know, teaching your parents dancing or stuff like that. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's something I've got. I've got a lot of reservations about TikTok and some we've talked about them lots on this show. But I do think yeah. that's something where there are kids are really like like dance is such an integral part of music that so often, at least in my music education, uh, was taught in such a kind of bland way. And I think yeah. TikTok is really encouraging kids to get excited about dancing and to create their own dancing to to choreograph yeah i think that's a big part of what you're seeing in a lot of modern online culture in general is like certainly when i was a kid online culture wasn't very participatory right like yeah. you had these things that happened and then everyone watched those things like peanut butter jelly time or homestar <laughs> runner or whatever there were people who made the content it was very similar to like classic music industry stuff where they're just like, there are the content makers and then everyone else consumes the content. Mm -hmm. But like through the rise of social media and 
Twitter and especially like TikTok, that's become less and less the case. And the way that these, you know, the, the conversation I was having with a friend of mine about this was in the context of jokes, but I think it applies to like music and dance as well is like, there is much more this idea that you're not just, you know, repeating the joke that you saw. You're not just like going and be like, you're the man now, dog. And that's funny. Uh, you are taking this meme format and building your own thing on top of it in a way that is much more open. And you see that, like you said on TikTok, like my re recollection of dance as a kid was that like they would, the teachers or whatever would teach us like the Macarena, the electric slide, stuff like that. Uh, Cotton Eye Joe. There were these set steps that someone who was an authority figure would tell me what they were. And then we did them. That's very much not the culture of dance on TikTok. I think it's really interesting actually talking about dance and music. I, I find it incredible that you learned the electric slide in school. Like <laughs> I, that's, that's credit. Like, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 34, so like I, I yeah. totally relate, you know, um, to what you're yeah. saying. The marriage of dance and music, I found very interesting because, like, especially when you talk about choreographed dances, right? You, you think you think back to, yeah. you know, I don't know, let's say, say the 50s, 60s, where you've got, you know, electric slide. Well, probably you know, in the 70s, 80s, looking at that, but yeah, you know, you're you're, you're talking about like even people like the high tops who were, you know, they had their dancing moves and stuff like that, but it wasn't necessarily, yeah, like we're doing these moves so that you do the moves to you know you know what i mean it was yeah. much more like we're just yeah. expressing we're doing something here and i feel like over time it's it's almost become like a thing like clothing right like where over time people have realized actually if i style myself in a particular way people are gonna latch onto the style as well as my music which is gonna help and maybe it's just all kind of looking at you know the influence of of, of capitalism on on music and and, and the, yeah. the industry but so often comes down to that. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to style myself in a particular way so that, you know, <laughs> you gravitate to when you, when you interact with my, my music, you're interacting with the style as well. And then it becomes about, you know, dance moves. Cause I remember that there's, it's, it's massive. Like for example, in Jamaica, right in the Caribbean, there's yeah. so many songs that, you know, incorporate specific moves and everyone does those moves to those songs. Right. And then you start to see, yeah. I remember uh, it was U-Turn by Usher where he he has, you know, his chorus is like, lift your hands up, bend your knees, turn around and the circle, get down with me, right? And yeah. it's like, one of the earliest examples I remember of someone being like, this is what you're going to do in the song as part of the song, yeah. as opposed to, it's an incidental move that I did in the video. Yeah, and that I, became, yeah. And yeah, that became it. big. And so yeah. I think, you know, you see it with like Soldier Boy, yeah, I was about yeah, to say. I, I, remember, I was thinking that same. Yeah, I remember yeah. being like twelve or thirteen, and Soldier Boy coming out, and like everyone, like every kid on the playground had to learn the Soldier Boy dance. Otherwise, you yeah. weren't cool. Yeah. Exactly. And there was yeah, there was the video that he like he published like that taught you how to do the Soldier yeah. Boy. Yeah, and exactly, exactly, and all of those things, right? And so I think as as you were talking about you know kids doing it now and making up their own moves, I wonder, you know, how much of it is an expression of the music and how much of it is if I do something really cool, I'm going to get more followers because everyone's yeah. going to copy me. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. The, the clout chasing in kids. That's, I don't want to think too much about that. That's, that's bleak. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, you know what? I think as, as a dad now, I, I totally see it so much more than, because I think for, for, for us, you know, it, it wasn't a thing back then, right? We weren't, we weren't going to get seen, yeah. right? Who's yeah, going to see no. us, right? But as a kid now, it's like, you could be seven years old and have a, 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 
a, a big following on TikTok or Instagram or whatever, whatever. Um, and so yeah. I think they already are aware of that from an early age to be like, okay, if I if I put some stuff out there, I might get something back and I might get more and I get more because even for the little one, like she sees all of these, like some of the stuff that she watches on YouTube, which, you know, half the time I'm like, you know, change it. It's yeah. so sad. I think sometimes the way they, they bring in adult themes to children's content, um, stuff that they yeah. really shouldn't be engaging with, I think at this age or any age really, kind of stuff like rich versus poor and stuff like that, which I, I think is, yeah. is ridiculous, I think anyway. But, yeah. you know, they introduce these themes for children and it's children who are like, who have a lot of money because they've been successful on YouTube or maybe their parents have a bit of money. They put them on and they're, you know, there was this whole opening. I don't know if you saw this. There was a whole thing about opening presents and children playing with toys. Yeah. You know? And so there were lots of kids who were like under the age of, you know, eight years old, seven years old, even five years old, four years old, who were like, oh, I, I want to film me opening and playing with this toy because they see someone who's done that, who's got a hundred thousand subscribers on YouTube, for example, you know? Yeah, no, like when, when I started doing YouTube, like uh, when I started seeing success on YouTube, I found that like a lot of my family didn't really have the context to process what any of it meant. Yeah. But like my youngest cousins, they got it immediately. Mm. They were like, nine and 13 at the time or something and they they were looking at this and like oh okay you're at this many subscribers you get this many views like they they fully understood exactly what that meant in terms of scale in a way that like i could not explain to like my parents their parents my grandparents everyone they were just they were happy for me they were like cool it's good that you're successful but they were just taking my word for it yeah when are you gonna get Whereas, a real like, job is <laughs> these like yeah these like like pre-teen and early teen kids were just like looking at this and being like, oh, got it. I understand exactly what this means. Mm. You are at this level of YouTube success now understood. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I I, I want to actually try something with you both in a bit, if that's okay. Yeah. But I also wanna, wanted to ask, just as you were talking about that, like, why did you start YouTube? The classic answer that I typically give is I graduated and had more free time on my hands than I thought I would. But I think a lot of it was that I had been watching educational YouTube relatively early on in sort of the lifespan of that community mm-hmm. and was felt that like basically everything I was seeing was like math, physics, some biology, STEM, everything was STEM. And like except for Mike Rignetta, but like I wasn't watching a lot of his stuff at the time. But like everything I was seeing was like, you know, STEM stuff. And I was like, I really enjoy music theory. I had a lot of fun in my music theory class. And I was also getting these messages from, or get get being told by like some of my teachers that like, you know, if you go off and be a performing musician, you wind up losing a lot of the stuff you learned in theory class because it's just not that relevant to what you're doing. Uh, and so like, I wanted to hold on to it. And so I started doing videos about music theory, partly because I thought like, there was value in that adding that perspective to the educational like YouTube scene. And also partly just, I wanted an excuse to keep learning music theory. And I knew that if it wasn't something that I was actively working on, I wasn't going to do that. So it was, yeah, it was a combination of those two things. I think largely for me, it was very much. Um, I, I remember watching a lot of film video essays on YouTube and really falling in love with the film with, well, just the video essay as a medium, but specifically a lot of film video, video essays. And then, yeah, also pop culture stuff like Mike Rugnetta. I mean, I think it's impossible to, uh, I think it's impossible to 
overstate how influential PBS's idea channel was on half of educational YouTube. <laughs> I was watching all of this stuff and there was nobody doing this specifically on music. And then I had a skill set from being a, a journalism student and tr I was already trying to make it as a music journalist. Um, so I kind of had the skill set and was like, okay, well, you know, if, if nobody else is going to do it, I guess I might as well do it. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's my origin story, my okay. superhero origin story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's, it's always, it's, it's, I think particularly in your cases, like I said, I'm, I'm an absolute fan. Um, and it's like, to hear that is really interesting to me because, you know, I, I see what I would love to do in different ways is kind of similar to what you do already, but for children, right? Because yeah. again, I realized there's, in different ways, there's a lack of certain material about music. And we kind of touched on it before around, you know, children's music and this whole separation between what children are supposed to learn versus what they could learn. Um, and, you know, I've found an outlet through, you know, creating a podcast and writing, writing books. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have to be aware of, you know, uh, video is the thing and everyone talks about video, 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 video. So I'm like, okay, cool. At some point I have to do something in that. Um, but what I wanted to kind of just ask you, you both is kind of give you a bit of background. I was writing a book that's it's going to come out next year. And when they asked me to do it, they, they basically was like, we want you to write a book about music for children. And I was like, okay, what would you mean? Like, what, what about They're like, well, <laughs> you decide. Right. And I'm like, okay, yeah. like, where do you start where do you go <laughs> right what like like what you know and they're like oh yeah. by the way you know you have a particular word count i think it was like eleven thousand words i'm like what am i supposed to do with eleven thousand words right um yeah and one of the things i realized very quickly was that if you're trying to communicate certain things to children like i can i can say to you you know i can ask you like what is a what's a mix what's the mixed lydia mode and you can tell me what it is yeah. right um, yeah, I would but, hope so, but, <laughs> but if I asked you and I'm asking you now, you know, yeah. on the spot, I don't know anything about music at all. Right. Can you explain yeah. to me what a major scale is? Yeah. I guess partly like I've tried to work through like what level I don't know anything about music is at. Like, can, can I assume knowledge of what a pitch is? Is that too far? Yeah. I don't know that. Okay. Um, like I have no music specific vocabulary at all. Yeah. And I have to do this in like written. I can't do audio examples. No, no. Just it's a book. Just, yeah. Just tell me. Oh God. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause like I'm trying to, like, I feel like I have to start by explaining what a note is, but like my, ex the explanation I have for notes is very tailored to like adults who I can assume actually know the concept, but that I can like just be like, all right, this is like frequencies. And, you know, we can do frequencies. We can do frequency ratios. But I can't throw frequency ratios at a five-year-old. That's not, <laughs> that's not engaging. That's not going to make sense. I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, if you, just, if you start from like, if you assume that they understand so that they know what singing is. You can hear Corey's brain breaking in real time. I, so, there's so many gears turning right now. If I can ask you to sing, I uh -huh. think I can maybe use that as a foothold to get into like what notes are and then what scales are and then what the major scale is. You have to know what singing is to get that. You can, you can know that. I mean, okay. You know, yeah. yeah. So if, if I ask you to just sing a, sing a note, and then if I ask you to sing a different note, is that 
then I can use that to explain the con. I, I won't know what the interval is, so I can't work from that, but I can explain the concept of an interval from asking you to sing two different notes. And then from there, I can start to explain how there are some intervals that sound really similar. And then I can talk about the octave from that, which I don't know that I could necessarily convey this. I, I, I'm not, I couldn't get you to sing an octave specifically without audio examples, but I could sort of talk about that. And then from there, I could talk about how scales subdivide the octave and then start to build from that, I think would be, the, yeah, yeah like, like Noah said, this broke my brain a little bit. <laughs> uh, but like, I think if I can ask you to sing a note and then a different note, and that is something that I can expect you to understand. Mm -hmm. I think I can build from that. Okay. But yeah, that that's that's not an easy question. <laughs> it sounds like it would be right, but no. yeah, I, I'm not even here saying that I have an answer either. Yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where, like, if if I assume you know piano, I can explain major scales very easily. But that's actually a lot of knowledge that has to go into understanding piano well enough for me to do that in the first place. Yeah, and. You know, like like we were saying, like there's a lot of, or I don't, yeah, there's a lot of cultures that don't have piano as a primary instrument. It's yeah. not a big thing. And there's a lot of, uh, won't use half steps as a primary interval either, or use the major scale as a primary hierarchy, tonal hierarchy. Like there's just a lot of things that I can't actually assume. But yeah, I think that's, I think as far as I can get with that uh, right now <laughs> off the top of my head, but I'm not sure it's a good answer, but it's the best answer I've got. That is cool. I, I I don't think there's a there's a like I said I don't have an answer and say oh you caught yeah. you out or anything. It's just like <laughs> it's one thing I realized was just like we you know we there's so much like specific language and understanding about yeah. what that means that if you're teaching a child like it's it's way more difficult than I, I thought it would be and like yeah. have so much more respect I think for music teachers who are taking children who you know in different ways have no idea of uh, any of these concepts and then slowly introducing certain concepts and then yeah. expecting you to create you know counterpoint within like you know 10 years or something which yeah you know is you think about it is yeah for, for, for the average person it's pretty tough with kids the approach to like learning about music i think could be so different because we at the moment in England, I don't know what it's what it's like where you are, but yeah. in England, there's a massive drop off of kids who are studying music, um, and it's partly partly I think is you lot's fault, um, <laughs> 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 because right, yeah. like you've you've done such a cool thing of being like, hey, you know, we're gonna give you some amazing content, amazing you know education about music. You don't have to go and study it because you can get it right here, right? So, yeah. you know, in some ways you've uh, kind of yeah. destroyed music education, right? But <laughs> I apologize uh, personally for all of us. No, not at all. It's great. It's 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 needed. At least in the US, I don't know if this is true in the UK, but at least in the US, I know that there is also just a significant issue of arts education funding Yeah, where we're not paying for music teachers and then acting surprised when kids don't get good music education. And it's one of those things where like, I, I am very hesitant to compare what I do to like classroom teaching because mm. it's it's so different in so many ways. Uh, and it's like, there are a lot of important things that a teacher can do that I can't. And 
So I don't know exactly what music education is like now. Um, and I'm in Canada right now. I don't know if it it's going through yeah. the same phenomenon. But I know when I was a kid in music classes, uh, especially when I was kind of a high schooler, like ultimately what I really wanted was to learn how to play bass and be in a band, you know? And uh, yeah. I was fortunate that I had uh, a music teacher that like understood that. And, you know, we did, I did like, we did jazz band and all of this stuff, but he also, he, he had, he did a good job of, you know, picking out songs for us to play that were interesting to me and that sort of stuff. And I mean, the, the, that teacher and another teacher um, at another school that kind of did a, a, a rock band program, I credit them so much with my continued interest in music. One of the big problems is that I think the goal of sort of any, a, a lot of education it shouldn't be to give sort of comprehensive knowledge. It should be to give yeah. a basic foundation, but more mm. than anything, it should just be to get kids excited, you know, get kids wanting to learn more about music. And I think that the way you do that is not by teaching them about music that is very sort of out there and not what they're listening to and, you know, like the the classical canon feels old yeah. and stuffy. I think the way that you do it is by teaching them through the songs that they love. And I think that's why, you know, channels like Corey and mine have appeal to kids who are, you know, doing more online self-directed music education. It's because we talk about things that they love, things yeah. that are interesting and exciting to them. I think that's an underrated goal of education. There's not enough impact or, or there's not enough focus put on making things exciting and interesting and meeting kids yeah. on their level. And there's so much focus on kind of trying to pull kids to a canonical standard where, and you know, you're still going to find some kids that love that. You're always going to find some kids that love something because people are diverse and wonderful. But at the end of the day, a lot more kids are going to be interested in, you know, figuring out what's going on with music and how music works through whatever TikTok dance is viral right now or through whatever song, you know, through exploring a music video that they love on YouTube or something like that. It's it's just mm -hmm. meeting them on their level. That's kind of I and again, this is just my sort of perspective from my musical education. I'm not on the ground. I don't know what's being taught in schools yeah. right now. Um so I'm not the best source, but that's that's my my two cents on the topic. Yeah, there's there's meeting them where they are stylistically. And there's also like, again, to go back to like the sort of creative input part of it, like I changed middle schools between sixth and seventh grade. And the one I was at in sixth grade was a very small school. And they had like an elective band uh, that you could be in. And there were like six of us in that class. And I, I had played the baritone horn a little bit in elementary school. And but like this, this class because it was so small and whatever it was just like it was basically a jam band where it was like you know bring your instruments and we'll just have fun and there'll be a teacher there to direct it and like I was really into that and I was really excited and so when I changed schools for seventh grade I immediately signed up for band but that was it was a bigger school and they just handed a sheet music and were like here's what you're playing and I lasted like two weeks in that <laughs> class before I just dropped out yeah yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think going back to the major scale thing, yeah. it's like, I think one of the ways you can approach a concept like that is to be like, tell me a song you love. Cool, mm. all right. Oh. Hear this. Yeah. This part, 
that forms this of this scale, or this is the yeah. pentatonic scale. This exact run is that pentatonic scale. Blah, 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 blah. We add in the fourth and the seventh. Bam, there we go. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, not in that way, obviously, but yeah. you know, it's it's that thing yeah. of like drilling into the things that you already know. Uh, I don't know if you've yeah. come across that, like Paulo Freire, the um, Brazilian educator, talks about this, like the, the banking system of education, he calls it, hmm. where it's about, you know, and this is kind of set against, you know, like um, this is like post-colonial theory and, and you know, going into that stuff. But he, he talks about, you know, there was education, which has been set up in a way to put things into a child, well, in, specifically in this case, into a child's mind, yeah. you know, and it's very, yeah, I'm giving you the stuff without actually interrogating yeah. what do you actually already know? What are you familiar with? Yeah. And forming one, forming connections between what I, what I think you should know and what you already do know. And two, helping you to have a bit more clarity about the things you already know. Yeah. No, that reminds me, um, last year I, w- I went to a uh, music theory pedagogy conference. One of the the talks that I went to uh, was a guy talking, this was at, like, he was talking about college level stuff, but I, it's a similar idea uh, where, you know, he had traditionally, like like you often do, you know, when you introduce a concept, you give examples, right? Like you go like, we're talking about modal interchange. Here are some songs that use modal interchange. And what he did instead, the experiment he did was that he went to his students, they, they did a class with like, here's mo- what modal interchange is. I'm going to explain the idea. Go find me songs that have modal interchange. Listen to your music. See if you can find anything that does this. Mm. And, you know, they brought them in and, you know, some of them were wrong and they were able to talk about like, okay, here's, here's what you were hearing instead. Uh, but like was able to, so take take the music that people had brought in and use that to teach them because that's, you know, what they're listening to because it's what they went to go listen to when you asked them to. And so was was able to find, according to him, like I, I, I trust him on this, uh, he found that there was really strong retention and people like they would talk about like different specific techniques, like, you know, the four major going to the four minor going to one and like tying that to, oh, this is the song that this person brought in. And, you know, when you hear that in other things, you think of this song now. And so they, they were able to incorporate that in a way that they, they could learn specific gestures by seeing it in the music they listen to. Mm-hmm. And it was a really interesting way to me. Again, like I, I have only heard this dude talk about his experiment. I have not been in that class. I have not taught that class. I don't teach classes. Uh, but like it it sounded like a really useful way to get people to more to interrogate more closely the music that they actually listen to instead mm-hmm. of you know and, and again I don't know how perfectly you can translate that down into like elementary school kids or whatever because like you do have to be able to explain the concept generically first mm-hmm. and that can be tricky when you're when you don't have examples you again you have to explain the major scale and then be like go find me a song with the major scale and that can be hard to do but you know like you said you tell me a song you like and then you listen and be like, oh, this is in major or this is minor. Oh, oh, this is Mixolydian. Let's talk about that. You know, you can sort of use that, have them bring you the song and then find what's in it that's related to what you want to talk about instead of just bringing the stuff you want to talk about and finding the songs that work for that. Absolutely. That's really cool. I want to ask you, just picking up on that, just in your own experiences as well, right? Like making the yeah. content that you make or the art that you make. Which, whichever yeah. side of the fence you sit on or it's a combination of both right i'm both. fine with both yeah both <laughs> yeah okay some yeah. of the videos you make i'm sure come from 
things that you love and things that you yeah. already have a, a, a fairly familiar with. What happens or how often do you reach into something that you you feel very shaky on? Um, Like feel sh- very shaky about like my ability to like teach it or about, you know, stuff that just I'm not so fond of as a listener. Your ability to teach it as in, you know, maybe not having like a wider range of, yeah, of listening experience yeah. around the, the, the style or something. I would say I feel that like frequently I reach into stuff that I don't feel sort of qualified to teach frequently. But I, I also think that my my background is in journalism and I studied journalism in my undergrad and like so much of the job of the journalist and so much of what you learn is how to kind of take something that you don't know a lot about, become an expert in it fast and synthesize that information to other people. So mm-hmm. so yeah. for me, like I, I find very frequently when I'm sitting down to kind of do research or write a script or something like that, it's very, very frequent for me to encounter something where I'm like, okay, I don't really know what's going on here, um, but I, I feel confident in my skills to research and to synthesize in a way where I can provide enough of an authoritative sort of stance on something without spreading lies or things like that. I think for me, a lot of my, a lot of my teaching confidence doesn't come from my existing knowledge, but rather Mm -hmm. from trusting in my ability to verify the things that I read and to research from sources and all of that stuff is where I feel that's what I sort of rely on when I'm feeling less comfortable about a lot of the the other stuff. Yeah, for me, it varies. Like on the more, the videos where I'm talking more about like theoretical ideas and models and stuff, I step out of my comfort zone all the time. And again, like Noah was saying, like I, I trust that my like journalistic and academic skills to like, be able to go through and like read a paper. Like I I did a video recently on analyzing vocal placement in studio mixes. And that's not something that I've really thought about prior to this, but I found a really interesting paper. I looked at some of the citations, read like a bunch of different sources on it and got a picture of what I wanted to say and was able to put that together, even though this was not something I would previously have described myself as an expert on and still wouldn't. But like when I'm doing videos on songs, that's very much a close reading. And that relies on very intimate familiarity with the specific vocabulary of the music that it's employing. And so it's something that I've gotten a lot more cautious about in terms of like presenting myself as an expert on, you know, how to listen to like hip hop or how to listen to R&B or how to listen to Latin jazz. Like these are just not styles that I feel like I am have an instinctive enough understanding of to really be the person telling you how to listen to this particular song. Mm-hmm. Like that's, you know, there's a long and complicated history of music theory doing basically that with styles that people didn't understand. And were just like, I'm just going to be the expert on this now. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I don't need to do that. And like, the, it, it's a thing that I go back and forth on because I also have a platform and a lot of the people who are, 
experts on those types of music don't necessarily have the same platform I have. And there are a lot of systemic reasons why that's true. And so there is an extent to which I, I do want to make sure I am leaving space to make the case that these are important and valuable styles of music to listen to and to engage with at a serious academic level. But there's also an extent to which I, I've mentioned this on the podcast a couple of times, but I, I did a little while back read a biography of Jay Dilla. Uh, it's called Dilla Time. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's, it's very good. Uh, but I have it, but I haven't read it yet. Yeah. One of the big takeaways from that for me was just how little I understood the process of sampling, like how much more thought and like levels you can manipulate that sound on. And it's something that like, if you just gave me a sampled like beat to analyze, I don't know that I could do that justice because I just don't have that level of familiarity with what great beat makers like Dilla did. And so it's one of the things where I, I try not to, because I don't want to put myself in a position of talking over people who know more than me in that sort of space. Uh, but I also want to leave space for the idea that there are people who know a lot about this stuff because there is a lot to know and it is a really interesting and rich tradition in its own right. And so it's, it's a thing that I'm constantly trying to figure out how to navigate and I'm not sure that I have the right solution yet. I'm not sure I ever will, but you know, I'm. it's a thing that I'm thinking about a lot in my work. I find it really interesting. Like it's, it's your, yeah. your approach is to like, can we call it art tent maybe? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cont art. <laughs> yeah. That sounds a bit suspect, that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Sounds like pop tarts kind of, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that approach to like, you know, to dive into things that you're not, sh you might not be sure about. Um, but also yeah. know that, you know, there are obviously there are always people out there who I think there's always someone who knows more than you, right? Thinking about yeah. just creating whatever it is you're creating. How much of this then do you think could be, yeah. you know, from this is actually my understanding of it and I'm coming from, at it from this angle, um, as opposed to maybe feeling like you need to know everything about it on that thing's terms to be able to talk about it. I think yeah. there's a there's a discipline in doing that for sure. Like not discounting yeah. that, you know, that at all. Um, but the perspective that you bring to something that hasn't, that the people in that particular style, for example, wouldn't bring um, could also be valuable too, right? Yeah. I think for me, one of the big things that kind of underlines all of this is at the end of the day, I am not submitting stuff for peer-reviewed papers. I am not teaching people. I am a YouTube channel and I am entertainment. And, you know, I'm, I try to be like educational entertainment and I take myself, yeah. I hold myself to journalistic standards. But at the end of the day, it's, it's funny because sometimes I'll get people kind of criticizing my work and being like, you know, this is a pretty surface level, you know, understanding of whatever this topic is or something. And my approach is always, yeah, you're on yeah. YouTube <laughs> watching a 10 minute video it's going to be surface level. Like if you want to deep dive on something that I do, watch Ken Burns jazz documentary. It's amazing. <laughs> it's one of the greatest things ever made, but it also takes a decade to, it took a decade mm -hmm. to make and it takes nearly as long to watch. Like I'm, you know, yeah. I, I, I think that's something that often I think people put a little too much sort of weight and prestige on what we do. And, you know, 
I take myself very seriously as a creator and an artist. Um, and this stuff is very important to me. But at the end of the day, like I am still just a YouTuber and my goal isn't to give people stuff to cite in papers. My goal is to give people to cite in pubs, you know, when they're having a conversation yeah. with their friend <laughs> like to, to give cool trivia. And hopefully, like what I really also want to do is hopefully inspire people to dive into some of those more, you know, official, more rigorous, m deeper sources to to get that curiosity going. And then maybe someone will go and, yeah, read a biography by someone mm -hmm. who spent a year of their life digging into this. Or maybe someone will, will go and watch a Ken Burns documentary. Or maybe <laughs> someone will go and decide, hey, this is really interesting. Maybe I can study musicology in my you know, as a master's and start to like do a thesis on something like this. Like my goal is always to be an entrance point and kind of like we were talking about with kids earlier to get people excited about music. So I think that yeah. there's something, obviously I take, like I said, like the journalistic standards rigorously, but ultimately I don't, I don't really have, I don't really have illusions about the fact that I'm a, I'm an entertainer. I'm a YouTube entertainer. Yeah. Um, at, at the end of the day. I feel like I have an obligation to be a good starting point, but I do recognize that what I do is, is a starting point that like, I remember similarly, like I got a complaint recently about one of uh, my song analysis videos where like, yeah, I teach the song to like beginner guitarists so many times, like everything you said in this video, I was really predictable to me. And it's like, yeah, cause you've taught this song so many times. <laughs> like you already know all this stuff. Most people haven't done that. Uh, but like, it's one of those things where, like I said, I, I feel like I am a more a conversation starter, more a first step than I am a, a master's in music theory in 20 minutes. Like, I don't even have a master's in music theory, so I'm not sure how I could provide that. I, I do also think that it's important, like I said, and like, like you were saying, Noah, to keep in mind the obligation to be a good first step, because like, I don't want to push someone in a direction where they then have to unlearn the things I said before they can move into, yeah. before they can start learning useful stuff. I, I think everything you're saying is so important. And I think the, 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 one of the questions I have, and I think this is pretty much one of the big questions that underpins a lot of my work is just that thing of like, if music education, and this, I guess is a big question, yeah. is, was designed to be a starting point. Yeah. If it was designed to be a starting point so that, you know, when you're, when you leave school at 16, 18, you can go to the pub and someone can put on some music and you've got some knowledge of that. Yeah. Then how different would it look? Instead of, you know, instead of spending maybe, yeah. you know, I don't know what the percentages might be, but 40% of your time going deep into, you know, classical harmony, which I'm not saying is bad yeah. at all, but you know, it's like, yeah. how different would it look if it was like, we've got, I've, you know, as a education system, I've got you from the age of five to the age of 16. I'm going to give you starting points on so many different things and do it yeah. in a systematic way in which over time, all of these different styles from Afrobeat to punk rock in different ways, we, you, you can start joining the dots and we start uncovering yeah. the people and the, the contexts and, you know, the, the music theory in that intertwines all of us and connects all of us in so many different ways this idea of music education not being a thing to teach you this is what you need to know to go on to the next level but actually this is what 
Yeah. These are the things that you could learn if you, and if you want to jump off and do something or go into a deep dive and something else, these are the jump off points that we're giving you. Yeah. More like a directory than Mm -hmm. a linear story. Uh, Yeah. No, I think one thing you're hitting on there, uh, obviously there are a lot of different branches of music education. There are a lot of different ways to teach music. And one that often gets overlooked in this sort of context is just music appreciation. Like, like music appreciation classes, if they're done well, which, you know, that that's a, a, a big if sometimes, but like they can really be a good way to quickly expose yourself to a lot of different ideas. And, and, and there are like, there are some potential pitfalls there. Like I have talked before, like back when I was doing my bachelor's, we had a one quarter class as it lasted for 10 weeks. It was called World Music. We spent one week on the music of like a bunch of different countries. And on the other hand, we had a two-quarter class that was music history that was just, you know, Western classical. And so we spent more time talking about Beethoven, who had like two weeks to himself, than we did on the entire thousands of years musical tradition of China. And so like it, it is a thing where like I think is a thing to be careful of when you're doing those sorts of things to make sure that you're not just like, you know, throwing out like a, a really sloppy explanation that again you will have to unlearn later. But like I think if done well, it, it's I, I completely agree with you that I think it's would be much more useful in a lot of ways than like training another generation of musicians to flinch when they hear the phrase parallel fifth. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I totally hear you. I think maybe the operative word you use there is useful, right? Yeah. Like there was, there's so many kids who leave. And, and again, um, I don't know that much about the, the, you know, American and Canadian systems, but yeah. there's so many kids who leave who don't know really anything about, you know, plugging in a microphone you know what i mean like like yeah. when i say that i mean that's very basic but i mean <laughs> it's like just the idea of you know what a sound check is and what it's for and the things that you might need to be aware of when you do a sound check for example um and even just you know thinking industry wise and just what it is to be a musician just be aware of these things and these things and these things that you might encounter or you might have to be aware of because oftentimes you know and maybe you know how it is it's not always about how good you can play there's so many other things that come yeah. into it the politics oh yeah come into it that <laughs> you know you're just not aware yeah. of at all yeah no, that was, was a big thing at like the music school i went to it was like a bunch of teachers would like send the same message of just like being good at your instrument is fine but but that just gets you in the door like yeah especially like in la where where like i went to school it's just like there are so many people here who are really good at your instrument that's not enough to set you apart. You also have to have all of these other like social skills. You have to know like how how to be easy to work with and all of that stuff that is really important for a professional musician, but also important for a human. Well, I think something also that's that's not taught like on a similar thing is just all of the different ways that you can be a professional in music. You know, that yeah. like yeah. you can be a musician, you can also be an engineer, you can be a music journalist, you can be a musicologist, you can be all of these different things. And I really don't think that, like, I I don't know, I know I wasn't taught about 
all of the different ways that you can work with and be around music. And even, even just saying you can be a musician, you can be a musician in a thousand different ways. You can be a recording artist. You can be a session musician. You can be a performer. You can be a touring. You can be any number of these things all at once. Like, I think that's Mm -hmm. something that is really lacking in music education is this, this sense of, okay, like what can you, what can you do in music? Yeah. Because it, it seems to me that, like often it, it you know if you ask kids how can you make a living off of music it, it kind of seems like they might think the only ways are either by striking the gold mine and making it as a recording artist or by you know going hard and being a virtuoso talent and being a classical performer when in reality like the the music industry there's so many different ways that you yeah. can make music and you can do so many different things with it. And I think kids just aren't taught about these different avenues that you could have. Yeah. 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 I don't think I realized that music theorist was a thing you could be for your job. <laughs> yeah. Until after I had started my channel. Yeah, I I definitely I, I was well into my undergrad before I realized that musicology was was even a field that existed, you know? Yeah. Mm, yeah and and to be honest the same with me I didn't realize that you could look at music through the lens of 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 race or the lens of class or the lens of you know of of sexuality like I didn't I didn't think you could do that but you can and it's incredibly liberating important too yeah incredibly liberating and important for so many people and you know there's so many people who I think would love and relish the chance to be like I can combine music with anything else like what you know yeah 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 Yeah. no and this is honestly like been one of the the thoughts behind the like guest series on this podcast it's just like a lot of the people we grab are people who are not musicians who do something unrelated and it's just like how does your thing intersect with this Mm. and we have yet to not find a good answer so hey music music's in so much like even yeah i was listening to a because i'm into like football soccer right and yeah. There was uh there was a game, I can't remember what the game was now, but it, it's happened like a week ago or so. And they were talking about there's a particular particular couple of moments, couple couple of goals that happened, right? And you're used to, if you watch a lot of football, you're used to hearing certain tones in the crowd. And yeah. and I'd love to do this. Maybe I, I if I have some time, actually explore this a bit more, but maybe there's studies that have been done on it already. I you know, if you listen to crowds in Germany versus crowds in Italy versus crowds in England the frequencies are very different. That's yeah. one thing. You know, the, the sounds that people make when people score a goal is different, right? But this person was saying, yeah. actually, you know, a goal was scored and normally it's like here, but because it was special and something happened that it was it was a different tone. And you realize, actually, there's like so much more to kind of explore even in that to understand what you know, what What sounds are people making when things are happening and what collective sounds are people making <laughs> and, and, and how are people adjusting their voices? Because how people sing in the terraces at football grounds, it's not how they talk, but it's like yeah. this thing that people adopt, this way of chanting and this way of singing, you know, 50-year-old men with, you know, 10-year-old girls and, you know, it, just singing in a, in a very specific way. And in certain moments, the pitches will change depending on, you know, not just like, ah, oh, you know, not just that, but actually 
the cheering that happens when a goal is scored yeah. in this context versus this, pitches can be very different. And even just exploring that could be a whole thing because you realize as teams and as sport is is forever trying to find those little edges. And there are teams who pump yeah. music into the stadiums and, 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 and pump more crowd noise. <laughs> You know, maybe even finding a, a particular frequencies to pump in that crowd noise might have an effect on on your team, yeah. right? And so it's that idea of something being really quite quite maybe trivial and just like yeah, that's interesting. Actually, could translate into millions and millions of dollars or pounds or euros or whatever currency you use. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think like this is running very long. Uh, this has been fantastic. But <laughs> kind of as we're coming to this, I think something that you know. We've, we've diverged a lot, but I think a common theme that I really want to underline to any listeners, there's so much to music outside of the frameworks that are currently kind of taught in music education, whether that's on a sort of elementary level or even up to a postgraduate level. Like, there's so much diversity in what it means to engage with music, what it means to make music, what it means to listen to music, and what it means to just be around music as a professional um, and I think that yeah. I think a lot of our systems are kind of uh, a, a lot of our educational systems are failing to convey just how much how much stuff there is out there, how much cool stuff you can do with music. Yeah, I, I think also I might want to highlight that like I there are certainly an extent to which I would say that at least my experience of like music education as a kid failed in some of those ways. There are also portions of that that I just I don't think make the most sense to do in a school context and that like just allowing more space for social engagement with music as opposed mm -hmm. to the hierarchic structural engagement that is sort of inherent to a classroom is also a very important part of allowing for children's musical development. Yeah, 100 percent. Did you have any more questions that you wanted to to get to or any sort of big final thoughts? I'll, I'll veer towards the big final thoughts because I have so many more questions and I think so many more <laughs> things that it would be amazing to talk to you both about. Um, but but I think just just bringing it all back to, you know, education and, and, and kids, you know, I think all of what we're saying, you know, there is a, there's a plurality yeah. of ways to experience and understand music. And I think one of the things about, one of the things I love about, what you both do is that you're at, you're looking at music in different ways and you're bringing out different things that you know we often don't we often don't get in music education a lot yeah um you're exploring you know context and 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 you know having beef with adam neely you know like that, <laughs> that doesn't yeah you know that yeah. No, very, very real uh beef he and i are definitely actually mad at each other so <laughs> You know, there's like so much out there and it's, it's just that yeah. encouragement you know for anyone who's who has kids in their care teachers who are who are teaching to really you know help music education to be that that jump off point that starting point yeah. that that thing that hopefully is going to get kids to continue playing music even if it's just for themselves at home you know forming little forming bands with their friends or whatever but just yeah. that thing that will continue throughout, throughout their whole lives to be you know, a source of encouragement, a source of, you know, financial gain even, but even just that thing of just having that space and time for yourself to enjoy and to yeah. get away from all the nonsense that happens in the world so often, right? <laughs> yeah, just yeah. try and diversify this thing. That's, I think that's fantastic. And if people 
you know, like what you had to say and want to check you out anywhere, where can they find you? Sure. If you, you go to my website, um, nateholdermusic.com. That's N-A-T-E, Holder, H-O-L-D-E-R, music.com. We'll put a link in the show description as well, if anyone cool. wants to check that out. You can find me there. My book's for kids, and the Y books. So there's a, there's a few books out there that hopefully will um, stretch you and, and, and you learn some stuff from and you'll find fun at the same time, hopefully. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for cool. coming on. This has been a really, really fun conversation. As always, you know where to find Corey and I, but your time is yeah. much better spent checking out what Nate has to offer. This has been really, really fantastic. And it's it's definitely got me thinking a lot. So thank you so much for coming on. This has been a pleasure. Uh, no, I really thank you so much for having me. It's been great. And um, yeah, I look forward to checking out more of your art tent over the <laughs> months and years. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, yeah. everyone. Bye. Bye. Take care.